Good morning, friendship family. Can we start by acknowledging that this has been a painful, frustrating, and heart-wrenching week this week? And because of that, I want to invite you to join me in praying as we open our message time together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, this morning we're reminded of your command to your people that in a dark and sinful world, we're to be light with every word and every action. You have commanded us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, Lord, we pray that as we see the evil of violence, we would be a people committed to overcoming evil with good. As we see the evil of racism, we pray that we would be a people who are committed to overcoming evil with good. When we see the evil of injustice, we pray that we would be a people committed to overcoming evil with good. When we see the evil of slander and hate, we pray that we would be a people over, committed to overcoming evil with good. Father, as your people, we pray that your spirit would shine the light and love of Jesus through each of us in each word and action in our life so that the kingdom of God may be seen through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friendship family, in the midst of the challenges that we face right now, in the midst of the situations going on around us, I just want to remind us that our aim is always to love, live, and serve like Jesus. With every word that we speak, with every action in our lives, let's be committed to our mission now as much as ever. Today we are starting a brand new sermon series. And as you saw in the bumper, that sermon series is called Wholehearted. And it is based on a fundamental premise that we are able to learn key lessons from the mistakes of others. When I was in my second year of seminary, I took an introduction to preaching class with five other guys. And we went to class every week and we learned about preaching and we watched preaching. And finally the time came for us to give sermons in the class. We'd been working on sermons for a couple of weeks and we all showed up for class on a Tuesday morning intensely nervous because our grade for the class depended on how those sermons went. The professor told us the order in which the six of us would be preaching. And of us six, I was last. I got to say, I wasn't super excited about being the last person to preach. I was nervous, I was anxious, and I kind of just wanted to get it over with. And as much anxiety as I had about how that sermon was going to go, my anxiety only increased as my classmates started to give their sermons. Because after each and every one of their sermons, our professor was ripping them to shreds. I mean, he was picking out every major mistake and every minor mistake that they had made in their sermon preparation. And he was letting them have it after they were done. And as he was correcting all of the mistakes that they had made in their sermons, I realized I've made most of these mistakes in my sermon. As a matter of fact, the sermon that I had prepared may have had more of the mistakes that he was talking about than any of the sermons of my five other classmates. And my anxiety continued to grow. I was sweating bullets as I was waiting for my turn. And then, my salvation. 
at the end of the fifth person sermon, my professor announced that we would not have time during that class period for me to give my sermon. And so I would need to start our next class off with my sermon. And so I floated home on that good news tore up everything that I had planned and literally started from scratch, totally rewrote my sermon with all of the mistakes my classmates had made in mind. I came back two days later on Thursday morning and I started off the class with my sermon. And when I got done, my professor literally looked at my classmates in that class and said to them, gentlemen, that's how it's done. Well, that is not the way to win friends within your class, by the way. But he talked about how much better my sermon was than the five that we had heard on Tuesday. And then we did some peer review, and my classmates all talked about how much better my sermon was than the ones that they had presented on Tuesday. And at this point, I had to come clean. I had to say, guys, the sermon that I had here on Tuesday was a bigger mess than any of the sermons that you presented that day. It was the worst of the sermons. But I had the opportunity to go home and change and rewrite everything based on the mistakes that you guys made in your sermons. I had an opportunity that none of you had in order to learn from your mistakes and make corrections. My professor laughed and said, yes, you did have a distinct advantage. But he said, that's also a key to life, to be able to learn from the mistakes of others so that we don't have to make them. And that's what we're going to be doing in this sermon series. We are going to be learning from the mistakes of the nation of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament book called Malachi. In that book, we find out that the nation of Israel was involved in half-hearted worship, which God says is an abomination. And we're going to learn the keys to wholehearted worship as we see all of the mistakes that Israel made. Now, as we look at those mistakes, we're going to be looking at the mistakes Israel made that are recorded in the book of Malachi, which talks about their sin after the exile. Now, do you, do you know what I mean when I use that phrase, after the exile? Let's take a 30-second look at the history of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, they had an opportunity to go to the promised land that God had promised them, and they conquered that promised land. Then once they were in that promised land, there were a few hundred years where Israel was ruled over by judges. Can you guess the name of the Old Testament book that talks about this time when they were ruled over by judges? Then they finally received a king. And during this time when the nation was united and kings like David and Solomon ruled, Israel was wealthy and expanding its territory. But then the kingdom divided. And there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah and both of these kingdoms ran after idols and disobeyed God. And for decades, God sent prophets to Israel and to Judah to say, turn away from your idolatrous ways. Turn back to me or else I'm going to need to bring discipline upon you. I'm going to need to send you to your room, you guys. But they continued in their sin and they continued in their idolatry. 
And so God used the nation of Babylon to come and conquer the Israelite people and bring them away into captivity. He essentially sent Israel to its room for 70 years. And when that 70 years was over, Israel was released and got to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city and live in their land post-exile. And during that time of rebuilding and restoration, they began to fall back in to the same kinds of half-hearted worship and sinful behaviors that got them exiled in the first place. And the book of Malachi talks about those things that they were doing that were not pleasing to God. And we want to learn from the mistakes that they made in their worship and in their lives and learn the positive lessons that we can learn from them about what it means to live in wholehearted love and worship with our God. God begins this book of Malachi with these words. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Friends, what is an oracle? An oracle is a message. In this case, a message from God. But it's more than that. Some of your Bibles actually translate this word oracle as burden because the Hebrew word literally means a weight. What we see here isn't just a message from God. It is a message from God that comes with a burden or a weight of response. Yes, I'm going to give you this message. I'm going to give you this message, but there is a burden of response to the message. Perhaps parents you have communicated that kind of message to your children at some point that carried with it a burden of response. Kids, have your parents ever told you, hey, we've got people coming over in a few hours and you've made a mess in the living room with your toys? Those are two wonderful pieces of information. People are coming over. I've made a mess in the living room with my toys. But every parent has an expectation when they give that information, that the living room is going to get cleaned up before those people come over. It isn't just meant to be a message with some information. There is a burden of response that comes with it for that child to say, things are a mess, people are coming over, you need to clean it up. And in that same sense, God has given them this oracle that comes with a burden of response. Your worship is half-hearted, you are sinning, and I want you guys to clean it up. I want wholehearted worship from you, my people. The first thing that God communicates to the Israelites in this book is an essential message that the Israelites need to hear and that you need to hear from your God. Everything else that we're going to read flows out of this sentence when God says, I have loved you. I, I have loved you, says the Lord. What a great way to start the book. I'm going to say some hard things to you in this book, Israel, but I'm doing so because I love you. I've brought you through some challenging times of discipline and hard circumstances, but it's because I've loved you. And everything else that, flow, everything else that we're going to see in this book flows out of this proclamation by God towards his people, I love you. Now, in response to God's proclamation of love, we're going to see the first mistake that Israel makes 
that we want to avoid in our lives. Because when God proclaims his love to Israel, in the very next line of this book, we see their doubt of that love. God says, I I love you, Israel. And the next line we read, but you say, how have you loved us? Israel doubts God's love. The people of Israel don't feel like God loves them. Let me say that again. They don't feel like God loves them because their circumstances are challenging right now. They don't see physical blessings all around them. And so they're saying, God, I I don't understand. Where are the physical blessings? They, They remember a time under David and under Solomon where their kingdom was this big. And now that they've returned from exile, their kingdom is this big. They remember a time when their temple was this grand, and now their temple is this grand. They remember a time when they were this wealthy, and now they are this wealthy and powerful. Not only that, some of the nations around them that have so badly mistreated them seem to have been blessed during the time that they were in exile. They're particularly focused on their neighbors to the south, the nation of Edom, a nation that has mistreated them, but during the exile expanded its territory and has taken over areas of southern Judah that have always belonged to Israel. And Israel looks at the blessing of those around them who don't worship God. And they're, they're looking at their own challenging circumstances and they are saying, God, we don't, we don't feel loved. Do, do you really love us here? We're not experiencing the blessings that we would expect to come with the love of God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where life was challenging, circumstances were hard, and you didn't feel God's love? You looked around and you said, God, I'm asking you for a miracle and I'm not getting that miracle. God, I'm asking you for healing and I'm not experiencing that healing. God, I'm asking you for your provision. And so many other people around who don't even worship you seem to be experiencing so much more provision than I am experiencing. Do you really love me here, God? Have you ever been in that place? That's the place that Israel is in here. And we don't want to make the mistake that Israel made and measure God's love based on our feelings or measure God's love based on our immediate circumstances and whether or not we have a lot of health and wealth and blessing. Instead, God wants us to measure his love for us in a totally different way. And so his response to Israel is seen in our remaining verses for the day. Look at verses 3 through 5. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, in order for us to understand what God is saying here, we need to understand the names that he is using here. Because he references two guys, Jacob and Esau. 
And so we need to understand their significance in the chosen line. Jacob and Esau had a grandfather whose name was Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham that the chosen people would come in his lineage. Then through uh, his son Isaac, that chosen line continued, and Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, but Esau was the older of the twins. Now, the chosen line could only continue through one of the two of them, and surprisingly, the chosen line continued through the younger of the two, Jacob. So Esau became the father of the nation of Edom that is mentioned here in Malachi 1, and Jacob became the father of the nation of Israel. And when Israel, at this time, looks at Edom and the expansion of Edom's territory and the blessing that they seem to be receiving, Israel says, God, how can you say you love us when we see Edom as more blessed than we are? God, how can you say you love us when our enemies are blessed and we are facing challenges in our circumstances? What is God's response to that? God wants them to stop gauging his love based on their feelings, based on their immediate circumstances, based on their understanding of the blessings of the physical things around them, and he wants them to instead understand their, their chosenness, that the fact that he has chosen them as his people to be the primary way that they should measure his love. Right? You can be assured of God's love because he has chosen you. God doesn't want them measuring his love based on the circumstances around them. He wants them measuring his love based on the fact that they are his chosen people. That is what is meant by that phrase, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. When the word hated is used here, it's used in a way that is different than we might think of this word hated. When we think of hate or hatred, we think of a malicious desire to do harm to someone else. But this is one of 11 times that the word hate is used in the scripture as an idiom or an expression where it means something different than that. Here and in 11 other places in the scripture, hate is not used in order to talk about a malicious desire to harm someone else. Hate is being used as a way to express the strong choice of someone or something over someone else or something else. We can see this use of the word hate to mean a strong choice for something, most famously in the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Really? If we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we need to mistreat our children? If we're going to be Jesus' followers, we need to have malicious intent towards our parents and seek to do them harm? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That would fly in the face of everything that Jesus and the New Testament teaches us about a proper love and treatment of our family. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is using a common idiom or expression with the word hate 
to talk about strongly choosing one thing over another. He's saying when it comes to the decisions that you make in life, I need to be so much the priority that it is like you hate everything else and everyone else in your life when compared with me. You need to strongly choose me as the motive in your decisions over everyone and everything else in life, even those things that are most important to you. Now, how do I know in Luke 14 that when Jesus uses the word hate, he means to strongly choose one thing over another and not to maliciously seek to harm someone because of the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the exact same setting, Jesus is giving the same teaching. And here is how Matthew renders his teaching. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you see what's happened here? Matthew has translated the idiom or expression in order to give its meaning or understanding, while Luke has used Jesus' actual words. And what that teaches us is that when Jesus is using this word hate, it is an idiom that means to strongly choose one thing over another. Jesus says, if you have to, in your daily decision-making, choose between me and your parents, you're to choose me. If you have to, in your life, for some reason, make a choice between me and your kids, you're to choose me. I am to be the most important thing in your life. And it is in that same way that the word hate is used in Malachi chapter 1. It expresses God's strong choice for Jacob and Israel as his people. When he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, he is saying, I have strongly chosen you, Jacob, to be my people. And you can see my love for you in that. I didn't choose the Egyptians. I didn't choose the Hittites. I didn't choose the Edomites. Who did I choose? Israel, I chose you. And so let's not make the same mistake as the Israelites and doubt God's love because of our current circumstances and the fact that they're challenging. Instead, let's heed God's words here and recognize we can see God's love because he has chosen us to be his people. That's the New Testament expression in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Has he blessed us with every material blessing in the worldly places? No. And that is why Israel was doubting his love. Because they said, God, where are the material blessings in the worldly places? But God wants us to understand, no, you recognize my love because I have chosen you to be my people and experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. No matter how challenging our current circumstances are, God wants us to understand the depth of his love not by looking at our immediate circumstances and not by gauging according to our feelings. He wants us to understand the depth of his love as we look at the fact that he has chosen us to be a part of his family. 
We can also see in this passage as God is speaking, not only has he chosen us to be his children, but he has also expressed his love for us by choosing us to receive his gracious gracious salvation from punishment. Israel deserved God's punishment. Edom deserved God's punishment. They both sinned and abandoned God. Israel worshipped false gods. For a while, they actually sacrificed their young children to those false gods, and they disobeyed God's commandments. Edom worshipped false gods. For a while, they sacrificed their young children to those gods, and they disobeyed God's commandments. They both disobeyed God. They both deserved God's punishment. And yet, Edom received God's punishment, while Israel received God's discipline. And there is such a key difference between those two things. Discipline is what a parent does for their child in order that they would experience the very best of what God has for them in life. When my kids were young and we would go for a walk along a busy street, they would run out into the street and I'd tell them no. And if they did it again, I would discipline them because I wanted what was best for them. And what was best for them was not running out into the busy street. And God has disciplined Israel for their disobedience. He sent them into exile so that when they came out of that discipline, they would be a people who were righteous, who were refined. He disciplined his people. Edom, on the other hand, received God's punishment. Punishment is appropriate justice for the crimes that we have committed. If I go crazy after the service today, go and get in my car and just intentionally start running people over for fun, I'm going to be brought up on charges. I'm going to go to court. I'm going to be found guilty for running people over intentionally with my car for fun, and I'm going to be put in prison for the rest of my life. That is appropriate punishment for what I have done. That's justice for breaking the law. And that's what Edom received justice for their disobedience to God, for their idolatry, for their cruelty to the other nations around them. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 10 says that they would be wiped off of the face of the earth forever. Individual Edomites could still come to God through faith. And ultimately, they could be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, but the nation itself was cut off. And in the 5th century, Nabation raiders came in and overwhelmed the Edomite lands, and the nation was destroyed forever. The Edomite people were spread out among other nations, but the nation of Edom was cut off forever because of their sin. When we look at this, both nations sinned before God. Both nations were idolatrous. Both nations deserved God's punishment. Both nations deserved to be cut off. And yet, Edom was cut off and received the punishment that they deserved while Israel received God's gracious salvation from the punishment that they deserved. Yes, they're doubting God's love because they are receiving his discipline so that they will come back to the right path. But God says, because you are my children, you will never receive the punishment that you deserve. God says to Israel, because you are my chosen people, you will go through hard times of discipline to bring correction and refining in your life. 
but you will never experience the punishment your sins deserve like those who are not my people and will be cut off forever. Does God love you? The answer he gives to us in the first five verses of Malachi is, yes, Israel, I love you. And the answer that he gives to us is, yes, I love you. There are times we may be tempted to doubt that because the physical circumstances all around us are challenging. And we say, God, how how can you love us when we're experiencing so much pain, so much hardship? And God says in Malachi 1, 1 through 5, stop gauging my love based on your circumstances and instead measure the depths of my love based on the fact that I have chosen to make you my child. Measure my love based on the fact that I have chosen to take your sins and place them on my son on the cross so that you will never experience the punishment that you deserve. Like Israel, we deserve to be cut off for our sins. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God says, you want to see my love, friends? Look at the fact that I have chosen you as my child. Look at the fact that I have taken the punishment that you deserved and placed it upon my son on the cross so that you would never receive the punishment that you deserve. That is the depth of my love for you. Look at my love and understand it in the fact that you'll always be forgiven for your sins as my children. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. God's ultimate love can be seen in the midst of ever-changing circumstances in the unchanging fact that he has chosen us to be his children and has graciously placed his salvation upon us so that we will never receive the punishment that we deserve. And as we stare at those facts, we are overwhelmed by the depth of God's gracious love in our lives, and we celebrate it together. Would you guys pray and just give thanks to God for that fact with me? Father, we're so thankful for the fact that we can look at your salvation and see the depths of your love for us. That you've chosen us, called us to be a part of your family. Lord, even more than that, you have chosen us so that we can graciously receive salvation from the punishment that our sins deserve. You have sacrificed your son on our behalf It is an overwhelming amount of love that you have expressed to us. And we say thank you and we praise your name for that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Friends, as we've done each week, we have discussion questions for you to go through today. And I want to encourage you to go through these questions, perhaps by yourself or if you're with your family, to do so with your family. If you're with your life group right now, go through them with your life group. The questions that are included are these. What what is one way you've learned a life lesson from the failure of others? That's what this passage is, message series is going to be about, learning lessons from Israel's failures. As you read the book of Malachi, what errors were the Jews making in their worship of God and love for him? Is there anything that has ever made you question God's love for you? What was it? How did God demonstrate his love for the Israelites? And how does God demonstrate his love for you? 
And what will you do to preach the gospel to yourself this week? What will you do to preach Romans 5, 8, and 9, and Psalm 103, and other passages about God's astounding, loving forgiveness and grace in your life over the course of this week to remind yourself of the depths of his love? We want to continue in worship right now before our service is over as we express our love for him and recognize the depths of his love for us. We love him through our giving, which you can do online or by mailing in a check. We do this each and every week. But we also want to express our love for him by worshiping him and exalting him and reminding ourselves of his great love and grace in our lives. And so let's continue to worship him now through song. Church, I encourage you to worship God with your whole heart as we bring and lift our praises up to him. You are good, you are good when there's nothing good in me. You are love, you are love on display for all to see. You are light, you are light when the darkness closes in. You are hope, you are hope, you have covered all my sins. You are peace, you are peace when my fear is crippling. You are true, you are true even in my wandering. You are joy, you are joy, you're the reason that I sing. You are life, you are life, in you death has lost its day.
in control of our world. Lord, we give you control of our hearts. God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save us and redeem us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Church, thank you so much for tuning in this morning or wherever you are. I just pray that you continue to walk with the Lord this week and that you continue to seek his face wholeheartedly. Have a great day.